Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. enjoyed Thanksgiving. Uh, this is our third of four or five shows this week. Um, there's one Sunday with Barbara and Solaris, last night's show and tonight's, and Thursday I'll be back with a special musical guest, uh, Greg Martin from the Kentucky Headhunters. Uh, but tonight we have D.A. Roberts. He hosts the Ex Machina podcast that live streams on Facebook. Uh, he is a retired police officer and cryptid researcher. He is also an author of terrific horror novels, and we will be looking at his Wolf Moon from his Apex Predator series. You can learn more about D.A. by going to his website, daroberts.net. Hi, D.A. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on tonight. Uh, thanks for writing a book so that we, we could get a guest. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure, sir. <laughs> yeah, uh, you have a well-done, spine-tingling book with uh, Wolf Moon. I really like that. Um, let's start with uh, describing what is the Wolf Moon. Well, Wolf Moon is the uh, the initial book in the Apex Predator series. They're currently foreign print, uh, but all of my series are interconnected. Uh, so if you read one series and say Apex Predator and you want to read the Codename Wild Hunt series, you'll see an overlap of certain characters. Some of the characters appear across multiple series. So the series really are truly interconnected. But Wolf Moon was really the introduction into the world of cryptid horror for me. Uh, I'd done previously, I'd done science fiction and zombie horror, but I hadn't done cryptid horror. But it was something that fascinated me from the time I was a kid. I've been in, into cryptid since... I don't know, the mid-70s, the first time I saw the Patterson-Gimlin film and watched those old Leonard Nimoy in search ofs. 
Right. Yeah, I think we all got our starts there. Yeah. Well, as I got older, you know, I I would ask my relatives and stuff as a kid if they'd ever seen Bigfoot. And, of course, you know, they all, they all thought I was a little idiot. But at one time, uh, I asked my uncle, and he waited till nobody was around. And he picked me up and put me in his lap. I was probably about eight. And he looked at me and he goes, they're out there. And don't let anybody convince you they're not. And from then on, I was just just absolutely hooked. I mean, yeah, I, I, he was my uncle was an absolute legend. Uh, he was the inspiration for the character of Jay Matoska in the book Wolf Moon, and because of that, uh, he really started me on a lifelong journey, wanting to know what was really out there. Cool. Okay. Uh, yeah, really like the winter setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, you have, uh, I think it was, you know, you go spend you know, a portion of tonight talking about your book. Uh, you have, uh, you know, to deal with uh, cold snow, ice, and mm-hmm. all the, how that could work against you or to your advantage. Uh, yeah, uh, that really comes comes into play, and you do uh, make great use of the the winter setting. And you know, it, the book starts off like a coal shack or uh. X Files episode where you know, something unexplained happens. It's like no witnesses, but you know the audience uh, see, uh, understands uh, something you know really bizarre happened, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know Detective or uh, Scully and Mulder show up, and <laughs> you know, they start putting you know, they. Find those one, yeah, that one little clue that uh, gets the story uh, rolling. So yeah, I I really liked how you presented the first uh, couple having what was believed to uh, be a bear attack. Yeah. Um, well, the, the title Wolf Moon. Uh, if you if you look up the uh, the different types of moons, like you've got the you know, a blue moon and harvest super moon. moon and harvest mm-hmm. moon, but a wolf moon is the first full moon in January of the new year. Uh, so it only made sense that it would be you know they would deal with the very cold climates, uh, the cold, the very the, a very harsh winter, um, because harsh winters tend to bring predators out. Harsh winters bring makes the prey harder to find. Uh, so, and in Missouri, we've we've had some pretty nasty winters. Uh, in fact, uh, back in 1987, we had an ice storm shut the state down for the better part of a month. Um, we were without power at my house for at least three weeks. Uh, so, I know Missouri can throw some harsh winters, uh, and this one was no different. I wanted to put the heroes of the of the book up to, up against not just not just the creatures that were doing the killing, but the elements itself. So really, that was an uphill battle for them the whole way. And, and so 
when you know the bodies were discovered in the park and you mm-hmm. know the you know the cops are notified of you know get an introduction to the hero of the story William Gray Eagle and he notices an elongated heel with mm-hmm. a deep imprint so a lot of the stories kind of based on this couple uh clues um and you know, throughout the early uh stages of the book and the you know the young couple walk you know walking through the park uh gets attacked by a, a bear um and will is you know kind of like uh, brody and it's like we're gonna need put, a bigger boat. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, and, and, and it, yeah. Do, do you really put you know the that first you know the skinny dipper on the beach? Yeah, you know, was she really hit by the boat, boat propeller, or do you really type into the cause of death? You know, shark attacks. Yeah, you know, he he's kind of like in in that stage where okay, this just does not seem like a bipedal bear. Uh, right. There's something a little bit more which gets him thinking more about his uh, native heritage. So how, how does the Will's uh, ancestry start helping to piece together that we're dealing with something – a little di- you know, different than a bear, right? Yeah. Well, Will Gray Eagle was raised by his his uh, his maternal grandfather when his parents were killed. Uh, so his maternal grandfather, Jay Matoska, is um, he, he's based on my uncle. My uncle was uh, he was Cherokee. He was a Cherokee Indian. Uh, he had married into the family um, and later divorced my aunt, but he'd always stayed close to the family. So I based the character of Jay Matoska off my uncle Buddy. And he was very much like him uh, and passed down a lot of wisdom to me over the years uh, around campfires and, you know, sitting, going in his basement and playing pool and, you know, just hanging out at his house. I spent a lot of time out there in the woods with him. And he told me a lot of those old stories, uh, like the Native American Native American legend, uh, the Cherokee legend of the Ulanga Dog Lala, which we call the Dog Man today. Um Native 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 oral history across the country talks about creatures like Bigfoot and and the Dogman, uh, and for that many tribes, a lot of which never had any contact with each other, to be telling the stories of same cre- the same type of creatures is it, it really makes you think. Uh, and I, I give I'm I'm not a particularly religious person, but I, I see myself as more of a spiritual person. Uh, mm-hmm. And I take a lot of my personal personal beliefs from the lessons I learned from my uncle. Um, although my my ancestry is more more Scot uh, more Scottish Irish, um, I grew up on the tales that that my uncle had told me. You know, when we were hunting or camping, and uh, I a lot of my 
my worldview was shaped by those stories. Um, I, I, I think the best place for a person to find themselves is in nature. And, uh, you know, I've, I've never felt more at peace than when walking through the woods. It's just that strange dichotomy. And I, I really wanted to give that to Will Gray Eagle. Uh, he grew up uh, a person in two worlds. You know, he grew up raised in the spiritual ways of his people. But then later he joined the military and became a cop. So he's walking that line between both worlds. And when he starts seeing those tracks, his rational, the rational part of his brain, his training, his cop's instincts are saying it's got to be some sort of animal. But the instincts he learned, uh, learned from his grandfather and learned from his, his people are telling him this isn't, this isn't a normal creature. This is something outside your experience. This is something dangerous. And the first basically half of the book is Will trying to come to grips with what he knows versus what he what he logically thinks should happen. And as, that, as those conflicts come more and more, uh, more, more and more into, into the light, Will realizes that in order to defeat this creature, it, he's going to have to do it the way his people would have. He, you know, the, the, the med, uh, uh, law enforcement is not going to stop that creature. Okay. Well, you know, since you just mentioned uh, law enforcement, uh, you know, we're the uh, uh, two, two lovers are uh, attacked and killed, uh, not you know, like the next chapter or two. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a, a second uh, killing and. You know, when Will uh, gets there, you know, there are some witnesses that he can uh, talk to. There's the uh, footprints going into the house, but not out of the house. Right. Uh, but you, when, yeah, you know, uh, Will was talking to, uh, you know, the people who you know, the neighbors who came over and you know, others you know, milling around you know they, they heard something you know that kind of thing right um you, you, know, you do you know, your dialogue uh seems uh pretty realistic uh you know, it was a uh Police officer talk uh, talking to the eyewitnesses. Um, is that pretty much just your uh, professional training? Exactly. I, I I spent ten years as a corrections officer. I was also a deputy sheriff. Uh, I, I served as a as a police officer in in in, in a couple of different towns. Uh, all in all, I spent about twenty years in uniform if you count it all up um, with different agencies. And and those lessons I learned affected my writing. Uh, it it made me want to make um, the details of an investigation as real as I could possibly make it. I've always seen a story as like a house. Okay, you have to build a solid foundation for the story to be supported. The bigger details, whether they be zombies, that whether they be werewolves, you know, any kind of monster, anything that is fantastical. Those big details are far more likely to be 
accepted by the reader if the foundation that the story is built on rings true. If you if you use real world vehicles, if you use locations, which I do, I use re- locations I've been and been to all over the Ozarks. Mm-hmm. Um, if you use places and real things, and your characters behave in logical ways, those that foundation lays the basis for the suspension of disbelief for the rest of the story. Okay. Well, yeah, that I think that comes across in in your uh, writings. I, you know, what little that I have published is more, you know, based on my observations from being somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not really scientific, or you know, it, you know, too scientific. It's just you know, to what I saw, but. Uh, but that kind of writing really does seem to make a impact on the reader that believable. It, it mm-hmm. pulls you deeper into the story. I'm I'm a firm believer in that the the fact that the stories have to have even fiction no matter the type of fiction it can be military fiction science fiction horror whatever genre and any fiction that you write has to have that sense of veritas it has to have something mm-hmm. that rings true because those are the details that the reader will associate with for example if um you're going to write a story and the main mecha- main character is a mechanic Okay, if you have a scene where the character is doing something, working on a vehicle, and you don't know what you're talking about, people aren't going to believe it. I mean, you say they say, well, you know, he, well, he adjusted the carburetor on the 2017 Ford Explorer. They don't have carburetors; they have fuel injectors. Um, little details like that. Uh, right. Like, a, for example, if I'm reading a book and somebody re- refers to changing the clip in the pistol. They've they've lost me immediately because you know nobody that has ever handled a pistol refers to it as clip. Clips hold ammunition. Magazines feed ammunition. So you don't put a clip in a in a pistol. Uh, so it's those little details that you have to get right, or you lose the suspension of disbelief. Um, you know, you you you've got to know what you're talking about, and you don't have to be a brain surgeon to write brain surgery. Uh, you, you can you just do your research. Uh, you 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 enmesh yourself in these characters. You know, I I know uh, for example uh, the scene where uh, the uh, where Mike Blanchard was was attacked and nearly killed by by the dogman. Um, I have a buddy. Carrie Davis, actually, yeah, I, I used him as a character in the book just to, as a way of thanking him for all his help. He was a special <laughs> forces medic, and I called him late one night. I'm like, hey, buddy, I need to pick your brain. He's like, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm writing a scene, and I just had this guy attacked. He's like, all right, well, describe the injury. And he goes, I, I, I did. I read the passage to him. He goes, that dude's going to die. I'm like, all right, well, got to fix it then. So I went back and rewrote the scene so he wasn't injured quite as bad. And then Kerry talked me through point by point exactly how he would pack that injury to save that guy's life. And Blanchard lived. Um, you know, I didn't. I don't have to be a special forces combat medic. I just know the guy to talk to. So mm-hmm. if you're going to write a story about and involve these characters that have these skill sets, even if you don't know that skill set, it's good to ask somebody who does have right. that skill set. Uh, so you you want you want to make sure that any real world details you're using in a story ring true. 
you know, did, did you base any of the cops that were attacked by, you know, these uh, creatures, or were they based on colleagues? Well, <laughs> the the character, um, um, the the uh, the one that Blanchard referred to referred to as the little bastard, yeah. uh, because he didn't like him. He was kind of an amalgam of people I've known <laughs> over the years. Um, so a lot of these characters, especially the law enforcement characters, uh, embody characteristics of people that I've served with yeah. over the years. Um, it's very it's it's. It's very rare that I bring in a character that's strictly based off one person. Okay, you know, I just yeah, there's like some of Max Hawthorne's uh, readers, you know, want to be killed off by him, and you know, they kind of <laughs> give them, you know, hey, you know, hey, I'm a buxom blonde, you know, I. I, I Please, please work me into your story and like kill kill me off by the plesiosaur, you know, <laughs> golf on the Gulf Coast and in Mississippi or something. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, you, know, you have a lot of people wanting to be uh, uh, devoured by some kind of creature, and a lot of these uh, books now, you know, you, can, you have easier access to. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's it's funny to hear. So, uh, so some of these stories. <laughs> well, I, uh, I like to interact with the people that read my books. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very approachable. I mean, I, my, all my social media, if you, anybody wants to contact me, you can find me at D.A. Roberts on pretty much anything. Um, at D.A. Roberts Author. Um, that's at D.A. Roberts Author on Twitter, on Facebook, on, on pretty much every social media I have. Uh, on YouTube, uh, it's at D.A. Roberts Author. Um, so I'm pretty easy to find, and I, I I encourage people if they've got questions about the books, contact me. I'm more than happy to answer questions, and I, I love interacting with people that have read the books because when I talk to somebody who's like yourself who has read the book, um, not only do I get to experience their reaction to the book, but I get to see something I wrote through their eyes, and to me that's one of the most amazing experiences because – that 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 says to me that that story has a life of its own now because other people are reading this story and they might look at it completely differently than I, than I did and uh, it, i find those differences just amazing and i love to, i love to i love to to talk to people when they you know they have different opinions of the character like uh for one example that a guy said that he would like to see the rock play daniel clark who is one of the characters in the wild hunt and in my mind daniel clark was not a big man he was built more like a like a distance runner, but I was like, oh, I can I could kind of see how you'd want the Rock to play him. That's kind of cool, but uh, it was very different <laughs> than how I envisioned the character, and I love that. Yeah, uh, it, the the, uh, the creative process and getting feedback uh, is. That's just a, a, a fascinating subject. Oh yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it, it really is interesting. And it just to sit there and talk with uh, an author like you that has several books, you know, people can read read them and start seeing the patterns that 
emerge that you know, uh, might be something that is you know, a, an interest of yours, you know, that mm-hmm. you, you may not, not have really thought, and it just kind of comes out of the subconscious, and, and it's like, gee, you never really thought of that. Um, and, you, you know, your interests in you know, the Ozark locations, we can get into that uh, you know, a little bit, but, you know, how does this... Uh, the the scenery and the landscape affect uh, an author. I mean, you know, like you just look at uh, Dickens's works and just see where he walked all over London, and mm-hmm. you know, you can still see those buildings today. Follow the same streets, see a few of his homes. Oh, it's just, it's just really interesting. Uh, to see how all these types of influences impact the author and yeah, the, the, and the author works them into the story. It's very interesting. Well, I uh, I, I have a, a deep love of the Ozarks. I. I've spent as much time in the woods over the years as I could possibly spend. Uh, mm-hmm. I really enjoy being you know, going out to some of these remote places and fishing. Um, I haven't had been able to camp so much in recent years because of a back injury, but I, I used to love just spending time out in the woods camping. And um, but that's you know it's just one of the one of the things I love, and, and I feel a deep connection to the Ozarks. And I wanted to share that connection with my readers. Uh, I wanted to write about the places that I've hunted, uh, that I've places I've camped, places I've, I've hiked. Uh, so a lot of these locations in the books are places I, I'm in, very familiar with. So I, I try to describe these, describe these locations in as much, in enough detail. So they, they could actually go there and, and go, I know this place. I've been, I, I've been mm-hmm. this place and I've been to this restaurant. I've, I've driven this road in my mind. I know this area. And that's the kind of thing I, I wanted to share with my readers. I wanted to give them, I wanted to give them the, the glimpse of the Ozarks that most people never get to see unless they're from here. Yeah. Uh, uh, what is it about the Ozarks that appeals to you? It's, it's the fact that, that, well, if you look at the topography, the Ozark Mountains are one of the oldest existent mountain ranges on the planet. They are far older than the Rockies. At one point, they were bigger, but they are so old that they're, they've been beaten down by, by, by time. Uh, so this area is very, very old. One of the first, you know, one of the first mountain ranges formed during the, during the, the upheavals of the continental drift. Um, so there's there's that feeling there. There's that rich history. There's such you know an amazing display of of, of color in the in the in the fall when the when the leaves start to change. Um, the Ozarks had just has this deep mystery about it. Um, like no matter how much you learn, no matter how many places you go, that there's just another secret over the next hill. And there's so much history that's happened happened here. Um, so many interesting stories. There were Civil War battles fought here. Uh, Daniel Boone was was rumored to have killed a, what's a creature called the Ozarks Howler, not far from where I'm at right now. Oh uh, wow! There's just there's just so much history here, and when you kind of delve into that history, you can't help but find 
an ever-evolving love for the Ozarks. It's just such a beautiful, serene place, and it's got so much to show people. Well, I I was not aware of the uh, Daniel Boone story. Oh, yeah. If you look up the Ozarks Howler, he was alleged to have engaged one. um, I think it was in Kentucky the first time, but he actually tracked Mm -hmm. it down and killed it near Cuba, Missouri. According to according to actually his uh, his own his own diary. Oh, did not know that. Oh, okay. Um, okay, you know, so, you know, with all your trips out in, in, into the woods and walking up and down the hills, um. It, yeah, are, are you seeing like you know the dog man or like the werewolf type uh, creatures in you know the uh, wolf you know this wolf moon book and mm-hmm. um or are are you seeing uh, how animals behave in yeah, you know, their natural habitat, mm-hmm. uh, because you, know, you do work in a hierarchy, the alpha uh, male characters, and you get the different colors uh, of the um, werewolf type creatures. Mm-hmm. So, do, like, have you observed a lot of that in the? Well, there's a long history. Of Bigfoot type creature and Dogman type creature sightings here in Missouri. Um, there's been been especially in recent years there've been been Dogman sightings uh, as far north as Hannibal, Missouri. Uh, there's actually a documentary on uh, on uh, Amazon Prime called the The Hound of Hannibal, uh, which is a really good one. But if you uh, look up Momo the Monster, which is the, what they called Bigfoot here in Missouri. Um, they started seeing it back in the 70s. Uh, I think the first sighting was in 1972 up near Louisiana, Missouri. Uh, but there's a long history of Bigfoot sightings before that. Uh, there were sightings. Uh, there were sightings by Native Americans. My uncle told me about uh, sightings on his land. Uh, I've had a couple of encounters that uh, I wouldn't necessarily call them sightings, but they were very, very weird, and uh, it'd be difficult for it to have been anything but a Bigfoot type creature. Um, both both experiences deer hunting, and uh, I, I definitely believe they're out there. Um, although I've not had a face to face sighting of one, uh, I'm I am definitely a firm believer that they're out there. I'm I'm, I'm sure they are. I, I I haven't seen them either, but you know a little bit we'll get get into. Uh, more documented accounts. Uh, of them, but um, you know, with, with the uh, winter theme in Wolf Moon, um, you have an action-packed scene between Will and the alpha male on the frozen. River and you know, 
ice is cracking here mm-hmm. and there, and you know, the bat, you know, battle uh, between them. And um, it, you know, how many uh, drafts do you have to write on, you know, like, the, to get that scene well, right? I. I, I... When I wrote my first book, it was uh, the first book of my Ragnarok Rising series, which is a zombie series. I wrote that back in what well, was released in uh, in July of 2012. Uh, 2012. Uh, and what I tell people, what I learned writing that first book was how not to write a book, uh, because I had to I had to tear it down and rebuild it like multiple times before it was mm-hmm. ready to print. Um, and by the time I finished the Ragnarok series, which is a 10-book series now, uh, by the time I finished that series, I had my system down. I knew I knew my writing style. I knew how I wanted stories to go. And I use a system that's a little different. A lot of authors use, use what are called beta readers. Uh, they'll write a manuscript, send it to the beta readers, and get the reaction. I use alpha readers. I have a group of people that read basically as I write. I'll finish a chapter send it to them. And while I'm working on the next chapter, they're already giving me feedback on that first one. And uh, it's a pretty pretty elegant process, really, because I get basically feedback in, in real time. Um, so by the time I've got a manuscript completed, I've already gone through it at least three times. And it's it's a working manuscript at that point. By the time I'm done and and type you know type the end so to speak at the end I don't ever really mm-hmm. do that but if you type once you reach the end of the manuscript and hit save I've I've gone through it enough times where I'm pretty confident to go ahead and send it to an editor. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Because um, I I think the if we just look at the. Uh, Battle on the frozen river, and you get will squirming around and dodging the uh, alphas, uh, swinging claws at them, and things like that. It 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 just seems like you you have. Really good descriptions of all the actions and you know the emotions, uh, you know, the fear of you know falling into the water as what you know, you know the ice cracking and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, it, it, it that's one of the interesting things about having an author as a guest is explaining how uh, you know, they do their. Uh, writing, so you, you know, I didn't know. If, you know, you just keep writing it over and over until you find all the right words. You know, dodge this way instead of using uh, doc. Yeah, you know, w- you know, word choice, or you know, and you just told us that you know, you're getting feedback from the your alpha readers. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting to learn. How, how it's done, and you know, the feedback that they give you. 
And it's it's invaluable. I mean, my alpha readers mm-hmm. really help me keep the books sharp. Um, they're a great group of people. Uh, that it just it, it's it's um, it's a great process. And 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 I I have done I have been able to really really fine tune my writing because of their direct input. And uh, I, I'm I'm very grateful to all of them. Um, I, I I don't want to name anybody by name without their permission, so I'm not going to call anybody out, but I, uh, I'm very grateful for my alphas. They do a fantastic job and, and, and it's a, it's a great process. I mean, I've learned so much doing it this way and it's really, it really has made the process a lot better. Well, it, it, it does sound like their feedback really has made an impact on you and, and uh, just to throw out that one scene uh, uh, out, out of the you know, a couple, you know, maybe a couple major scenes in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that, uh, they really did um, help you to fine tune those chapters to make them very effective. Well, like I said, it's it's one of those processes where I I give them my ideas and the, the feedback I get from my alphas is, you know, it might be the pacing is off here. It might be uh, I don't understand what you're saying uh-huh. here. You know, you need more detail at this point. So basically the best advice I've ever given I can I can give a new author is, you know, the rough drafts don't have to be perfect. Rough drafts just have to just have to be written, and I send I send that rough draft to my alpha readers, and we tear it apart, we deconstruct it, and that process has allowed me to really come to terms with everything I need to add to my writing. So, the and writing is like any other skill; it's something that you have to do a lot um, in order to be good at anything. You've got to practice. And I'm constantly writing. I'm writing projects constantly. Um, so when I send when I send out to my alphas, over the last last five years, uh, I get less and less things I have to fix because I've dialed it in. I know what they're gonna what they're gonna look for. I know what they're gonna gonna say. This needs more of. So it's rare that I I get. You know, whole pages of, of red from the alphas, like, hey, you need to fix this, fix this, fix this. Mm-hmm. Now I'm getting more, hey, you really hit this on the head first time. So that 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 really that process has really helped um, for me to to grow as an author, uh, to to improve my craft, and I'm constantly trying to learn better ways to do things and how to improve. Yeah, uh, feedback does does help. Uh, yeah. You're going to grow from either, you know, comments like, you know, leave this alone, you know, you got it right on the first time, or, you know, you're going to learn something. Uh, I don't get, I don't get this part. Right. You realize it's not really uh, being nasty. It's just part of the job. If you're not connecting with your audience, why? Why bother writing? Exactly the the whole point of writing stories is to connect with your with your readers, mm-hmm. and if you're not doing that, 
then then you're really you know you're really dropping the ball. Um, but first and foremost, writers need to be writing for themselves. Uh, you need to be writing the stories that you want to tell. And if you tell those stories well, the, the readers will come. Um, it, not everybody is going to be the next Stephen King, the next J.K. Rowling, the next uh, Jonathan Mayberry. You know, you're not going to jump up on, on the first novel and hit it out of the park like like you know on and reach that level. You've got to put the work in. You've got to write stories that people want to read, and then you've got to grow that audience. Well, yeah, you know, well, I'm, I've been impressed with this this book, and you know, I think very highly of, of your creative process. Well, thank you, sir. But, I appreciate uh, that. And, and uh, you know, we kind of keep you know telling a little bit of the story and you know, getting a little bit more of how you insight, uh, you know, your insights into the uh, how how you want to present your your story. But you know, you do have the uh, inevitable like silver bullet. Scene. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, goes back to the Lon Chaney, you know, first movie. Uh, you, know, you get the van, you know, almost in every vampire movie, and mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it's like, oh, you invite them into your house. Let's see, like your choice. It's it's your problem to deal with now, uh, but it, yeah, there you know, ha- have been uh, like a- um, adaptations of uh, you know, like the clumsy and lumbering zombies from Night of the Living Dead to um, the running. Uh, zombies in 28 days later. Mm-hmm. That's you know a little bit of an update on the bad guy. Yeah, it's just like you know, just keep keeping something fresh. But you know, but you know, the update with the 28 days later is that it's actually going back to the original. Frankenstein, where the, the monster is actually, uh, you know, there's you know the scene of him running across a glacier because uh, he saw Victor and you know, ran across the glacier and up the mountainside and just yelling at Victor about, hey, you know, you walked out on me. I want you to build me a companion. Yeah. It's so it's actually you know, uh, comes back full circle to, to uh, but but you know what do you and other horror writers do to uh, you know, keep this kind of like like the silver bullet uh, uh, you know the, uh, theme going, but also present. Uh, you know the you know weapon that's going to 
you know, kill kill the bad, uh, you know, the monster, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, just keep keep it going in new directions, uh, both without uh, alienating the audience with the uh, just traditional foils to the monster. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that's a that's a that's a really good question. Um, a lot of writers. Um, will always well most writers try to put their own spin on things and uh that that's that's the to me that's the greatest thing about writing fiction is we're not constrained by the budget on a big screen we're not constrained by you know what they can put on on a uh, on a on a film or a TV series uh really the the the, the only limit is your imagination so, like for example, my Ragnarok Rising series. It was a zombie series, but I wanted to do something that was different. Um, you know, we've all seen every every iteration of the zombie virus. It's you know a government government conspiracy. They they created it in a lab or radiation from space. You know, there's always a, there's always that explanation for the zombie virus. Well, mm-hmm. I wanted to do something a little different, and uh, I have a, a deep fascination for Norse mythology, um, and as I was reading more about it, I read about Ragnarok, and that's basically uh, Norse Armageddon, the end of the world. And it said during Ragnarok that Loki would lead an army of the dead out of hell to uh, to go back to do battle against the forces of good. And I thought, well, he's leading an army of the dead. That sounds like zombies. But the more I dug into Norse mythology, they were they have a deep connection to different types of undead like the typical um, um, George Romero zombie would be called a draugr uh, there's a, the Norse have about a dozen different names for, for, for zombies so assuming that the zombie fire started out very much like the old George Romero draugrs they're, they're slow moving and and you know the, the basic you know description of the plotting zombie I said I thought to myself well if that's what starts it, could it change? And since the cycle of Ragnarok is an ever-changing cycle, I thought, well, we'll introduce the zombies first to begin Ragnarok. And it would you know, begin – the pieces would start falling into place for the rest of Ragnarok. So I brought in the, the typical George Romero zombie. And then I added what I called sprinters, which were fast, and which you know we've all seen fast zombies. But from mm-hmm. there – I started adding others. I added ones called shriekers, which would scream and, and alert alert other zombies of the presence of survivors. Uh, there were trackers. Uh, and with every every couple of books, I was adding another type of zombie. Uh, I was pretty proud of the ones I called stalkers. Uh, those were pretty terrifying. So I always wanted to do my own version of the zombie apocalypse. And by putting my own touches on it and implementing elements of Norse mythology, it completely changed the dynamic. Uh, so I wasn't writing just your typical George Romero zombie film. It suddenly became something much more epic. Um, in fact, one review I read, by the time the series ended, uh, they referred to it as The Walking Dead meets Game of Thrones. So toward the end of the saga, you know, when the Ragnarok Rising saga, toward the end of the saga, when ammunition's running low, they're resorting to more and more medieval style weapons and it it was an evolving story and I wanted to tell something much like Tolkien did I wanted to tell this mm-hmm. huge overarching story you can go back to the Ragnarok Rising saga and read any one of the books and they stand alone they'll stand on their own but if you read them from beginning to end 
that you will realize that that into, that ten book series is one big story, and it ended the way the only way it could. Uh, and I was pretty proud of it, uh, and I think um, I think we'll be revisiting that world at some point. But uh, I'm 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 pretty happy with the way the series turned out, and uh, I hope people uh, enjoy that and and appreciate the uh, the differences as well as the similarities. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, uh. That's interesting how you can uh, work in the Norse mythology and, and there's some uh, crossover to you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's uh, I I I just really like having someone like you just really explaining. All the where where they're getting their ideas, and you know, you just kind of take that into oh yeah, it, you know, I can see where uh, Tolkien would have uh, gotten that idea for you know, the Minds of Moria, or, you know, so, so, mm-hmm. something like that. It all it all kind of uh, so many authors just keep going back to. The, those stories from folklore, you know, we're getting into Beowulf in, uh, in a little bit, but you know, there's you know, there's few few just a few stories that everything else is based on. Yeah. Well, they say there's really only like eleven or twelve basic story types, and everything yeah. else is just interpretation. Um, I don't know yeah. if I if I a hundred percent agree with that theory, that that theory, but that's that seems to be the going theory in literature. Um, mm-hmm. But I also believe that you're that you, most most writers, and I can't I can't say you know this with a hundred percent certainty that it applies to everybody, but I know most of the authors I know are heavy readers as well. We're not just writers; we we also love uh, experiencing the, the 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 works of other writers. I mean, I've got dozens of books that are by many many different writers all over my shelves. I've got shelving units in not only in my my office but in my bedroom where I've got. You know, I've, I've probably got more than a couple of thousand books on different shelves, but I read everything from from Stephen King to Tony Hillerman to John Steinbeck uh, to J.R.R. Tolkien, um, uh, Tom Clancy. Um, uh, that's just to name a few. I mean, I, I read just about everything. You know, I love Clive Cussler, um, Michael Sullivan. Um, there's just thousands and thousands of authors out there that I love reading their books. Jonathan Mayberry, um, Alan Gamboa. Um, there's you know lots of writers that I love reading their books. And by studying the craft of other authors, that we are constantly challenging ourselves to do better. Uh, by you know, by not just being a writer of stories. We're also readers of stories. Um, so that gives us a deep love of the written word. And it's that love of the written word that comes forth when we try to share these stories with people. And I hope that I connect with my readers on that level as well, because, you know, when it comes down to it, 50 years from now, or 25, 30, whatever years, many years from now, I hope somebody has read one of my books and talks fondly of the story 
I don't care if they remember me. I want them to remember the stories. To me, it is all about the stories. Yeah, and another author that you do um, mention in one of the chapter headings is uh, Poe, and I think he was kind of thought uh, start of chapter six. Yeah, he may have held the same sentiments. Um, I, I quote a lot of authors. I always put quotes at the beginning of mm-hmm. the chapters. Oh, and no, I, I, I just think it's a fun little too. touch. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a good little touch, but also if you look, if you pay attention to the quote, it has some bearing on that chapter. Mm-hmm. And, and Poe po frequently did that too. It's, you know, it's um, going back to uh, Milton or something like that. That mm-hmm. uh, is you know, just kind of like a encapsulates you know the whole you know the short story. But um, you know, yeah, you do have uh, Poe, a sample of Poe. Words have no power to impress the mind without the exquisite horror of their of their reality. Um, I assume Poe was a influence. are there other authors that you, know, you really enjoyed? You mentioned uh, Clive Cussler or mm-hmm. Stephen King. Uh, uh, who else? I, I read so many different authors, uh, and not all, not necessarily all in the same genre. Uh, I, I like um, Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, the Sherlock mm-hmm. Holmes books are just like a go-to. Every every so often, I'll have to go back and read those again. I have mm-hmm. a, I have huge volumes of of his complete works. Um, another one I like to go back and read again is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series by Douglas Adams, just because that series yeah, makes pop- me laugh every yeah, time. Popular in college, yeah. And every time I read it, I find something I missed the, the time before. So it's it's a very enjoyable read. It's just it's it's just absolute a joy to read because it's so fun. Um, then, you know, I'll also read, you know, like Stephen King, Clive Custler, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien is, is one of those, one of those series that I will go back and rewalk the paths of middle earth again, many times over my lifetime. And I, I've, I've probably read those books more than a dozen times over the years. And, you know, if uh, I live to be an old man, I'll probably read them many more. <laughs> And um, and there's like uh, Paradise Lost is one of those books where uh, you know just reading it over and over and each time you pick up so, so many new insights into those powerful one lines that Milton mm-hmm. wrote that it, it, it's almost like you know, you're reading it for the first time right each time you read it. Well, you know, I like to go back and read books that I've read before. Uh, there's one book I've read. Uh, it's by um, Jack Higgins. It's called A Prayer for the Dying. Uh, Higgins wrote a lot of action stories. Uh, he's mm-hmm. most probably most well known for the for the book uh, Eagle Has Landed. They made a movie oh. about, over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, fantastic writer. He did a lot of World War II era fiction, which I was fascinated with. But A Prayer for the Dying really 
really struck a chord with me. I've probably read that book a dozen times over the years. And I like to go back with books like that and read them again at different stages of my life because I see different elements of the characters as I age. Uh, uh, you know, when I was a young man, I just saw the, the tortured character of, of Martin Fallon. But as I as I grew older, as my as as I had more life experiences, I was able to to look at those characters in a different way. I was understanding them on different levels. And to me, that's that's the best part of a story, because the story didn't change. Only my interpretation of it did. And that's that's the hallmark of a great writer. Higgins wrote such in-depth characters that as as I changed, my view of the characters changed because I understood them on different levels. You know, it's just part of the maturity process. Mm-hmm. Good for you. And, um, and when you are you know, working on this book or your know, other ones, you, know, you said you, know, you really like to use the local settings and mm-hmm. Um, the you know one of the uh, finales of um, Wolf Moon was at the Tonka Castle. It's uh, actually called Ha Ha Tonka. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Ha Ha Tonka State Park here in Missouri. Uh, it's uh, the ruins of a castle. It was built back in the uh, early part of the ninth, uh, the, the early part of the twentieth century, uh, and it, it ended tragically. The guy that that owned it uh, perished, and the place caught fire and burned. But the ruins of the castle are still there, and the family donated the land uh, to the to the state of Missouri, and they turned it into a park. Um, mm-hmm. But if you've ever had the chance to be there, um, not only is it just that that kind of haunted feeling when you look at the ruins of the castle because you know at one time it was grand. Uh, there's also these stunning vistas where you look out over Lake of the Ozarks uh, from a cliff top that's you know, a few hundred feet towering over the lake. Um, and there's just some amazing scenery there. And as you walk the trails around Haha Tonka, it you can feel the feel these these different places. You get the feel for this place because it's 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 got so much to offer. The to, the topography varies wildly. There's cliffs. There's a lake. There are caves. There are trails. Not only are the ruins of the castle, but there's other buildings there as well. So as well, some of them are still largely intact. Um, and there's one area they refer to as the Devil's Kitchen, which is really a cool trail to hike, but it's also a little eerie. Um, so it's just it's a place that has has not only beautiful views but kind of a haunted history, and it seemed to be the perfect place to, for the climax of the book. Yeah, uh, it, there is an atmosphere that seems like it uh, from your. I was assuming it was a real place, and mm-hmm. it just it seemed like it uh, the atmosphere, the history, the tragic you know, loss of the house, and uh, you know a, a mansion. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that all just 
seems like it, it's a great setting for the end of your book. Now, I just want want to ask a little bit more about that. Sure. Neat, neat way to. Well, the, the history of Haha ha Tonka is kind of fascinating. Uh, the the, the, fam- like the family that owned it, uh, the I, I cannot for the life of me remember the the, uh, the the guy that had the commission to build, uh, but he was a mason and he brought in stone masons from Ireland to build the house. He would not let locals work on it at all, and. When the house was completed, he sent them back to Ireland. Uh, the place is shrouded in mystery. Um, mm-hmm. Allegedly, when he died, he had the largest collection of occult lore west of the Mississippi, and it was donated to the University of Missouri at Kansas City, where it was being cataloged. Um, well, that was almost a hundred years ago. Uh, it was, I think, in the early 1930s when it was donated to the University of Missouri in Kansas City. And that that collection is still, quote-unquote, being cataloged to this day, and you can't get access to it. Okay. So it makes me really wonder what he had in that collection. Yeah. So, some kind of – it's almost like uh, – a, you know, the, the secret Vatican library type thing. Right. Well, Missouri is riddled with caves, and uh, I've long believed there was a there's a cave beneath Ha Ha Tonka. Uh, you can't get access to it if if. And I know there are some caves down there that you can, uh, like the ones I mentioned in the book. Those are really there uh, because of the the endangered brown Missouri brown bat. You can't get into them anymore. They've got them sealed off with with gratings. Um, but the caves are still there, and I, I firmly believe there are caves beneath Ha Ha Tonka. Well, uh, an eccentric guy may have uh, but, uh, blocked them, uh, you know, put put some kind of camouflage o- over mm-hmm. any of the entrances. Well, yeah, you, like you, I said, he brought in brought in stonemasons. So, he had the money to do it. Yeah, he had the money to do it, and these are professional stone cutters. They could have made it look like a natural entrance, uh, or completely concealed it. Uh, the, man, the man's name was Robert McClure Snyder, uh, senior. Uh, but the Snyder family donated all of the land to the state of Missouri after he died. Uh, uh, what kind of time period are we looking at when the house was under construction? Was it like eighteen? 18- 30s or something? Uh, no, it was the early part of the 1900s. Let me let me oh. uh, Google it real quick. Oh, okay, I, uh, I was just wondering. Yeah, that the uh, element of you know, like these gothic kind of legends and stories at a at a real place. You know, it does sound very appropriate. For the climax of your book, well, Mr. Snyder uh, was born in 1852, um, and they moved to Missouri. Uh, actually, moved to St. Louis in 1876, uh, where they they got into the wholesale grocery business. Uh, around 1880, he moved to Kansas City, where he where he again established another wholesale grocery business. 
later branching into real estate and banking. Oh, also, he was a big uh, proponent in utilities, you know, basically uh, electricity. Uh-huh. Um, once he'd made his fortune in 1904, he purchased Haha Tonka at the lake uh, in, near, in Camden County, Missouri, and immediately began stru- constructing roads and making heavy improvements to get, the, get it there. He, um, the, uh, oh, hang on a second. Um, the house went through a lot of stages of construction and I guess, you know, it was multiple stories and it, it could be seen from all over the area, but the lake wasn't there at the time. Uh, it wasn't until after he built the house that the, the dam at Bagnell Dam, uh, Bagnell Dam and on the, uh, um, dammed off the Osage River and created Lake of the Ozarks. He actually fought against that project, even though it was a hydrodynamic, hydro, hydroelectric dam. Um, but of course, you know, it was, it, it, it won out and, uh, the dam was constructed and it flooded that valley. I think the reason he fought against it because it was because he had cave systems there that would, would have been flooded. Um, so, uh, it, uh, okay, that makes sense. It's a very Cthulian story. Um, there's so much going on there, and the fact that he had such a massive occult collection is just really amazing. Um, so much there. Okay, cool. Cool story. Okay, so, and accompanying all of um, the action adventure and uh cryptids gothic elements you have in your uh, books um you, you do have some captivating uh book covers um uh, who is doing your artwork how does all that fit in with the um, marketing of your book, I and you know, kind of look at Sergeant Pepper as you know the best example of how an, the album artwork can pull you into you know the purchase. Um, the, your uh, the artwork on your uh, book covers is uh, you know, ju- just as uh, powerful as. Uh, many of the uh, very popular album covers. Well, I appreciate that. Um, most of my covers, most of my current covers, were done by an artist named Michael Fisher. Uh, he lives in in Florida, and uh, he he recently stepped away from to, from uh, doing book covers to open his own business. Uh, so I had to find another cover artist. Uh, and uh, fortunately, I was able to find a very good one in, in Adam Shepard, and uh, he's able to do was very good at duplicating the style of the previous cover. So I don't think people are going to see much of a difference in the evolution of the pic, of the pictures on the cover. Uh, but yeah, they always, the old saying is never judge a book by a cover by its cover, but we all do. Um, an eye catching cover will get you get people to read your story, whereas a bland cover will drive them away. Uh, nobody wants to read a book that just has a plain, plain black cover with the title on it. Um, unless you're, unless it's an author you already know, uh, or you know a story you've been told is captivating, you're probably not going to take 
a chance on a book with a plain cover. So you're, you're, the, the first chance to, to intrigue your audience comes from the cover. So you want something that's eye-catching. The next thing you have to have is a good cover blurb on the back. Uh, that little two to three paragraph sample is what's going to draw them into the rest of the book. Uh, so you've got multiple layers going into that, going into the cover and the interior of the book that's all designed to catch the eye and draw the reader in. Uh, so it's, it's really a great process because I've been fortunate enough to work with these, these artists and not only have they really been good at capturing the mood I wanted? Uh, they've they've been very 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 willing to work with me on my vision of the cover as well. Uh, so it's not just you know I say hey I need a cover for this book and they throw out an image. It's more of an organic process where the cover evolves based on what the artist sees and what I need. Um, so we we've uh, we've got a really good process going and I I think uh, we're going to be able to continue that. Okay, good. Yeah, uh, I do think it's uh, you know the artwork is very effective. You have on your covers, and uh, and uh, one of um, uh, I don't know, about halfway through your book, um, there's a reference to. Uh, Dog soldiers, mm -hmm. and you're taking uh, a little bit of the ideas from that chapter, and mm -hmm. you're developing that into a short story mm -hmm. as well. So you actually have a, a little bit of a spinoff uh, from with inside your book as well. Is, is that right? Yeah, well, the the dog soldiers. Uh, if you look back in the the history of, of of the expansion of the United States, as the as our push westward brought us more and more conflict in, into more and more conflict with Native American tribes, um, the Cheyenne, the Lakota, uh, and several other tribes had soldier had warriors called the dog soldiers, uh, and they were their, their most fierce warriors, and they were they were pretty feared. Um, I took the the legend of the dog soldiers, or uh, in 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 the Lakota, the Hotametaneo. Um, I, I took that legend and and just expanded upon it because in some of the the tales of the dog soldiers, they had credited some of the more powerful ones with the ability to transform, to transform into wolves, to transform into 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 bison. Um, so they credited the dog soldiers with being very mystically powered. Uh, so I took that, expanded on it, and that's the characters I, I brought in. Uh, the entire Apex, Apex Predator series is steeped in Native American lore. Mm -hmm. okay. And you know, like you, you just um, said a Native word. Yeah, you do have a few um, Native words in the book and I was going to ask you about that it's kind of like you know watching the godfather it's not like overwhelming where you have a whole lot you need a, a lot of subtitles but mm -hmm. yeah, it, it does give you that flavor of dealing with um real uh you know the real native language mm -hmm. well, just, it, it, I, I tried to I tried to bring in as much of the the real the real expressions the real terms as I could uh, because I wanted to show respect for 
the the, the native legends uh, because I find them fascinating. Uh, I grew up listening to them with my with from my uncle. Um, I've heard them from other uh, other relatives as, as well, and more of the books that I've researched growing up. But I, I just I, I wanted to convey a, a deep respect for the for their culture, not that I was making fun of it. Uh, I never wanted any indication that that I was just you know tongue in cheek using the using the legend no, no. Um, because I, I I have a great deal of respect for the culture. I have a great deal of respect for the dog soldier legends, and I wanted to give that. Uh, the the respect it was due, and to 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 use those legends to tell this this story. No, I think uh, you, you achieved that. Thank it was you. just it, it was just an, it, interesting to you know, get get those uh, you know little authentic phrases or words put in there. It's like oh wow okay. Um, yeah, it just makes it more realistic. Yeah, I, I tried to, to use as much of that as I could because I wanted it to be an immersive read. I wanted people to read it and feel that there was more than just paying lip service to the to the the ideas, the the uh, the, the legends. I wanted them to feel drawn into it and feel a connection to those legends. So what? What? You know, with um, yeah, you mentioned Alan Gamboa. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a guest a couple weeks ago with Hadley. Yeah, um, Alan's great. He's a fantastic writer. Yeah, well, it, you know, with um, just, you know, just say uh, since Alan Hadley were uh, guests with us recently, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're. Uh, Incorporation, you know, Hadley has a lot of the uh, uh, Gulf Coast uh, mm-hmm. supernatural type stuff. Allen's into the zombies. Uh, you know, you've written on that. You're doing some other, uh, you know, sci-fi. You know, these uh, werewolf type humanoid beastly creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Where is the direction of horror writing going? It's uh, you know j- just throwing out those th- <clears throat> excuse me um, like those three authors uh, you know you and a- Alan and H- Hadley all mm-hmm. uh, oh, you know, it all fit under you know the horror genre but you have all these like different m- motifs and uh, categ- other categories that you know, everyone's working under you know where do you see the horror genre going i've uh, i've seen a lot of resurgence of of uh interest in the in the horror genre, it's become more popular here. I think uh, since the uh, Black Plague of the 21st century hit, I think horror writer horror horror stories have become more popular. Uh, mm-hmm. I have no plans to stop writing horror anytime, but I do uh, I do also write sci-fi, and I've got a fantasy project I'm working on as well. So I'm not going to, going to always be constrained to writing horror. I want to be known as 
a writer of stories, not just a writer of horror stories. Uh, but I do love horror. Um, you mentioned Kolchak the Night Stalker earlier. Don't you, you, that was one that of my is, first experiences with horror. I used to watch those with yeah. my mother when I was a kid. In fact, yeah, me too. Uh, as we speak, I've, I've got, I'm wearing a knockoff of uh, Kolchak's hat. The, uh, oh, it's good. The I straw, about that, yeah. yeah, his straw boater hat. I'm actually wearing one right now. Uh, it's the, the Night Stalker INS Hatter Chicago on the inside of it. Uh, one of my favorite hats. Um, I wear it all the time. Um, I, I like to wear it when I write because Kolchak the Night Stalker was one of my early influences in horror. Um, but um, I, I see, I see. Well, like I said, with the, with the resurgence in the horror genre, I think we're going to see a lot more, especially out of the independent crowd. Uh, we're going to see a lot more different takes on horror. We're going to see we're going to see directions going that we probably wouldn't have seen just you know, if it was we were limited to what comes out of the big publishing houses, um, because there's a, there's some amazingly talented writers out there that are writing in the independent market now. Uh, Allen and Hadley are just two names that pop off the top of my head. I mean, there's some fantastic writers out there. Uh, you got guys like Sean Chesser. Um, uh, Rich Ristucci. I mean, you've got some some names out there that are really kicking up a lot of dust that are that are showing they're showing the uh, the right the writing world that you don't have to have Random House behind you to write a good story. Um, a lot of amazingly talented or talented authors out there that are starting to make names for themselves without a big publishing house behind them, and I think that's going to continue. I think we're going to see a lot more out of the indie world than we see out of the big houses. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, we can get into you know most of those people uh, doing self-publishing. If well, most of the indie market is yes, uh, or they're with very small publishing houses, uh, places that have limited runs. Um, but uh, companies like Amazon and there's several others out there that opened up the market to allow independent authors a chance to publish. And, and show their voice. They really changed the game. Uh, the advent of ebooks made it so much easier to get your writing out there because you don't have to submit it to a publishing house or do it yourself and order 10,000 copies of a book to start selling it. Print on demand and, and ebooks changed the way writing is done. Um, I, I liken the, the ebook. Uh, as a breakthrough on the level of the Gutenberg press, it absolutely fundamentally changed the way the writing world is. And publishing companies that think that that's not the wave of the future are probably going to get buried. Point. Yeah. Cause, uh, you know, Barbara and I get um, you know a, a lot of uh, books sent to us. Uh, probably are. Um, looking at some kind of biblical mystery, some uh, historical, like David Brody's books with all the uh, uh, Holy Land treasures that Mm -hmm. uh, may have been brought to uh, North America by the Templars. Uh, Mm -hmm. I, I think with the pandemic, you see, uh, I think Barbara and I have just been inundated with authors who have kind of turned 
more towards some kind of uh, biblical uh, faith-based type writing, mm-hmm. and uh, it doesn't surprise me that you, you, know, you are seeing almost the same thing mm-hmm. in uh, a where, where people uh, want to be scared. They enjoy that type of genre. Um, I yeah, you can read the Book of Revelation and see where mm-hmm. um, spirituality and horror are mm-hmm. intertwined. One of the uh, better series that I've seen that explores a, a, a biblical aspect of the horror was a zombie series by Shane Moore. Uh, called the Apocalypse of Enoch. Uh, he really did a lot of a lot of biblical research to write that series, and it's it's a great series. If anybody hasn't had a chance to read it, wow. Okay, that's something I can consider for a show. At some oh, point. Yeah, also uh, Shane's a fantastic guest. He's been on my show twice, and he uh, he brings a great perspective. Cool. And, okay, and and while while we were trying to figure out some ideas to uh, discuss for this show, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, I sent you a photo of this uh, frog. Yeah, the frog with a human skull head. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically a gargoyle-type creature. You know, that's what, I, I don't know, going back to the I don't know, 12th, 13th, 14th century, uh, the photo was from uh, the Melrose Abbey in um, uh, Scotland. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was in uh, the Borders, uh, the county Borders, Mm-hmm. Um, that that was just like one of those things you know, kind of happened to notice, and um, I can only zoom in so far. To, you know, saw it, but yeah, you know, there was uh, you know, when we look at some of the gargoyles on these cathedrals, you know, I can kind of get into you know, the movie Gargoyles. Um, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of these uh, uh, like European type settings uh, you know, uh, asked you about the uh, if you're aware that uh, a dragon that's up in the upper left hand corner that uh, a field of cloth painting mm-hmm. from ha- Hampton Court are are some of these uh yeah just say gargoyle uh art you know, like european artworks from the uh, middle ages uh, do, do they seem to be uh representing some type of animal that uh may have be- become extinct since then uh 
something that was passed down in folklore that uh, you know from you know a long time ago mm-hmm. uh, that that they were you know, just wanted to incorporate into the artwork. Uh, what do you think about some of those uh, creatures? I uh, I think especially when you when you look at um, say Native American artwork or medieval artwork or um, some of the pictograms that we find mm-hmm. etched in rock. Um, I think we should pay more attention to those than than people do. You know, they they didn't put things on there that they they didn't put things on there that were made up. They were drawing pictures of things they saw. Um, every culture has myths of two two things in common: dragons and giants. Every culture talks about the about the two of them. So to me, that says that some, there's not got to be something to it. Like for example, Bigfoot. Um, you look at Native American totem poles up in the Pacific Northwest, mm-hmm. and there'll be the whole totem pole will be filled with known animals. But then there'll be a Bigfoot head on there, and science goes, "Oh, this one exists. This one exists. Oh, but not this one. This one doesn't. Couldn't it possibly exist?" The Native Americans put that on there because it was something they saw, uh, and to dis- dismiss folk art and to dismiss uh, oral traditions and things passed down uh, by by lo- the locals is is foolish. Uh for example, uh, the coelacanth. Uh science said it had been extinct for millions of years, yet I believe it was off the coast of Madagascar they'd been eating them for for, for generations. Um and they're still right. out there. Yeah. Uh, another great one was uh if you see if you've read the book by Michael Crichton Congo, he talks about the killer ape theory and he actually used them in the book, but they're it turned out to be very different from what what reality was uh, the, the natives in the Virunga region of the Congo had been talking about killer apes for the longest time. And Western science was like, Oh no, 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 that's just native folklore. mumbo jumbo. Apes don't do that. They don't act like that. Flash forward to about 20 years ago, the early part of the early part of the two thousands, a, a photographer for the national geographic was looking in an, in an area of the, of, of the Congo, uh, for a tribe of apes that that the locals were saying were there, and uh, he was also setting up camera traps trying to get like big cats. Um, mm-hmm. Well, he got something on camera he didn't expect. The natives were telling him, "Watch out for these apes. We call them lion killers." And they're like, "Oh God, no! Apes don't hunt lions." Well, they discovered a new species, and its closest rela- relation is the eastern chimpanzee, but it's closer to the size of a gorilla. Uh, and it's extremely aggressive. It walks on two legs for the mo- for the uh, most of the time. It's called the Billy Ape, B I L I, and it's a very real thing. It's the killer ape that the natives have been telling them about for fifty to a hundred years. That Western science says no, that can't exist. But yes, it does. And they have hunted lions, and they're extremely aggressive. Um, you know, they're they're like I said, their their most closest relation is the eastern chimpanzee, but they're bigger. They're far more aggressive. They've waged war on other tribes, and they're they spend a lot of their time walking bipedally. Amazing. Yet science said they they couldn't possibly exist, but there they are. Yeah, well, they, it, they, they've documented them now. Yeah, uh, that uh, Seelacanth, uh story mm-hmm. is the, you know, the most glaring example of yeah they. They all died millions of years ago, and 
you know, here you can still see him on, uh, you know, f- find videos of him on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, cl- clips from like, you know, just, just say National Geographic type shows where, you know, you know they, they live in these you know, little pods and mm-hmm. there they are. Well, Still it's like, a, like Max Hawthorne talking about, you know, big creatures living in the depths of the ocean. We know less about the bottom of our own ocean than we do about the surface of the moon. We've explored less than 10% of the ocean. We don't know what's down there. Um, they might uh, scientists might claim they do, but even today, if you go out into the Pacific Ocean in a boat and you left the trade routes where the ships where shipping tend, tends to go, and you got out away from shipping, you might never be seen again because nobody goes out there. They stick to trade routes because that's the most direct route to get from port to port. They're not out there just driving up and down the but down the Pacific. You know, there there are huge swaths of the Pacific that we just don't go in. Uh, so we know very little of what's out there. It's it's completely feasible for some big mammal or big reptile to exist out there, and we'd never see it. Um, That's a good point. For example, here recently, uh, somewhere in the uh, off the coast of China, a U.S. Navy submarine, uh, I believe it was, uh, I want to say Connecticut class, a big attack submarine, hit something. While traveling at speed, the official story they released was an uncharted mountain. That story holds about as much water as a steel colander that you strain spaghetti through. Um, they, submarines operate on sonar. They're not going to run into a mountain in the middle of the ocean. They, they're, they're going to be able to see that coming with sonar. They'll get, a, they'll get an echo off of that. They hit something they couldn't avoid. They were able to keep the keep the ship under sa- the, the sub under sail, and they they limped it into Guam, where it was going to undergo repairs. And then you know, a few weeks later, the official story came out about them hitting an unknown mountain. You know, you don't just you know, there's not a traveling mountain out there jumping in the way of submarines. We've got pretty good sonar of the bo- of bo- bottom of the ocean because of the SOSIS networks. We know the topography. It's the it, it's the life that we don't know much about. So they hit something. They couldn't avoid something. It was either moving too quick for them to steer around or something that rammed them. Um, immediately, every other submarine of that class was called to port to take on new equipment. I don't know what they hit, but they're not telling us what it was. They hit something big, big enough to damage a sub. Wow. No, I, I believe it. I don't know what's what would be down that deep. I, I, Maybe it that, could possibly have been a whale. But if yeah. it was a whale, they would have told us. We've had submarine. There's a you can Google uh, submarine strike hits whale, and it's there's a do, there's documented cases of submarines hitting whales. Uh, if it'd been a whale, they'd have just said, "Oh, we hit a whale." Uh, the fact that they won't tell us what they hit, or they come up with this cover story that's so thin you can read the newspaper through it. Um, it's some, something else. Yeah, they hit something that they don't want to admit they hit. You know, could that have been another submarine? Maybe. If they if they'd have struck a Chinese submarine or a Russian submarine, it would be all over the international news because the powers that be would be pissed. Right. So that leads me to believe they hit something they don't want to admit. Okay. Could 
Could have been like, uh, you know, that squid from uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or something like that. Mm -hmm. Don't want to admit that Jules Verne was, science fiction is actually becoming a reality. Right. But uh, in in one of your uh, recent shows, you're talking about... uh, um, the anonymous author of uh, Beowulf uh, may have been actually depicting uh, Grendel, uh, Beowulf's you know, battle against Grendel towards mm-hmm. the end of uh, that uh, poem, uh, and he he may have uh, Grendel may have been some kind of uh, Bigfoot type. Uh, Anglo-Saxon type creature. Uh, mm-hmm. What's what's your evidence for that? Well, there's lots of uh, lots of uh, European lore. Uh, a lot of it in England and Scotland, but in, in Northern Europe, where they talk about a creature called a wood woes. W o o d w o s e. One word. Uh, and they were described as large, hairy men that lived in the woods and would sometimes attack people that were out straying on their own or, or on their own or traveling. Um, but if you read the descriptions in Beowulf, what, the way they describe Grendel is very similar to the descriptions of, of the modern Sasquatch. Uh, they t- it talks about being very big and, and swarthy and covered in hair, um, very aggressive, preying on people. Uh, that sounds like a Bigfoot type creature, um, a very you know, an aggressive big creature that they had to fight. Um, and there's a growing school of thought in in the, the cryptid circles that Beowulf was very much talking about a Bigfoot type creature or a tribe of them that had been been attacking attacking the uh, the Vikings. Interesting, very interesting. So, um, it, you know. It's, uh, uh, you know, so send you some some of these uh, photos of um, petroglyphs. You know, Barbara put them on the uh, mm-hmm. uh, banner. You know, be, uh, uh, hopefully, we have lots of people listening. And they can just uh, go scroll through them to see it, like three samples. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> yeah, there's. Uh, yeah, the uh, photos I took are you know, were made by uh, Harold Barth in 1906, and he he uh, went to four petroglyph sites. Uh, one was on the basically on the Pennsylvania Ohio border, and there's one near East Liverpool, Ohio. Uh, one like the was it the Wellsville site is uh, just a mile or two down the river, and then mm-hmm. uh, a little further down is the uh, uh, Browns uh, petroglyph site. Um, you know what he did was put uh, printer's ink in. The grooves and laid paper over top of 
the petroglyph and you know produced it, you know, picked it up and you know produced an image. That's really about the only uh, images we have uh, aside from early photos of uh, the uh, modern lock and dam system. Uh, they're all underwater now. Uh, so you know, there's some because uh, a ingenious way to preserve history. But mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there's one that's called the manatee. I I don't know if yeah you know, the artist uh, saw a manatee in the Ohio River. You know, it's pretty far north from their usual habitat. Um, I don't think, you know, these petroglyphs are maybe uh, 500 years old. You know, they aren't Mm -hmm. super, super old. Um, I, you know, I really don't think that there, there was any kind of uh, climate, major climate change at that uh, time. Um, All that kind of, uh, today's climate pretty much got, um, you know, became settled mm-hmm. uh, five thousand years ago. Yeah. Uh, so, so um, yeah, have you? It, it's I, I don't know if the artist was so motivated by seeing like a fish that he spent all that time like chiseling into a rock, in, like the mm-hmm. outline of. This it, it does look like a manatee, but I, you know, is it a fish? Have, you know, I've never read anything about like a manatee skeleton being found in the Ohio River. Are you aware of any kind of river type creature? Uh, there, are, there are lots of alleged uh, water cryptids, uh, like uh, the Loch Ness monster or the Lake Champlain right. monster. Uh, lots of things that are seen like that. But uh, I looked at the pictures you sent me of those of those uh, uh, pictograms and um, petroglyphs. I mean, and uh, my guess would be that the 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 native culture of the Mississippi Valley uh, traveled traveled and traded extensively. Um, so my guess is probably one of them uh, went far enough south where he saw a manatee in the Gulf in the Gulf of Mexico uh, in the Gulf of Mexico and came back and and sketched it to tell other people what he'd seen. I would guess that that would probably you know if you compare if you uh, used Occam's razor, uh, the simplest simplest must be simplest explanation is probably it. I would say somebody either went down there and came back. To try to and, and they tried to explain what he'd seen, or somebody from that area etched it to say, "Hey, th- well, down where I'm from, we've got stuff that looks like this." Mm-hmm. Um, I, mean, so I, I would say it's probably somebody that actually saw a manatee. You know, and, you know, uh, there are those, uh, you know, like conch shells, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, that shows that there was a trade network. Yeah, uh, I, you know, just. It, 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 after seeing those uh, scrolls for you know, on it, you know, it was four or five years ago, uh, it, it was really uh, an ex- it, 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 
fantastic experience being able to see see those. And, and uh, one of them is a dog uh, type creature, wolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, not sure exactly what it is, but uh, it, it's some. It, it looks like some kind of uh, wolf, dog type a- animal. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's taking us back to will gray eagles heritage you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, werewolf or dogman type legend i i don't know how i think there've only been about two dogs since found in high river archaeology so i well, the the thing is, is what people don't really understand is that the conditions required to make a preserved skeleton, to make a um, fossil, uh, okay. the conditions to make that are very, very specific. And I read once that it was only like one out of every million animals that lived that became fossilized. So we're when we see fossils, we're seeing a very small percentage of the animals that lived. Not everything was fossilized, uh, especially you know in cases where where uh, they died in like uh, you know areas where the the ground was very soft. Uh, they might have sank deeper into the into the muck beneath rivers and things mm-hmm. like that. Not exactly ideal conditions for creating fossils. Also, if the area is very wet. Bone tends to, to disappear pretty quickly, especially when you've got scavengers. So, the, just the the chance of us finding a fossil of an animal is a million to one. You know, it, it's you know they we find very few fossils of all the animals that ever roamed the earth. Um, you know, if you if you look if you think back to the time of dinosaurs, how many billions, possibly trillions, of animals have lived during that time? Yet we've got what a, a few hundred really good fossils. Mm-hmm. A good point. Yeah, it, it's it is the yeah these odd things uh, like Julius Caesar talks about like some kind of uh, unicorn type animal in his. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gallic Wars, uh, yeah, it, it, that's you know a uh, notable name out of history. And what's he doing writing about unicorns? Yeah, uh, it, exactly. It, it, yeah, it, it, it's just you know, some of those odd things. You, you know, your totem pole example that that really it makes you wonder it, it, uh, about. Some of these uh, woodland creatures, uh, things in the rivers, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you just really – could they really have existed? You know, did, did some of the dinosaurs live up until a little bit more recent times and you know, get the behemoth and the Book mm-hmm. of Job? And uh, I think there was a, a journal entry of uh, one of the uh, – Soldiers at uh, the Battle of Fallen Timbers had uh, shot a, a mastodon. Mm-hmm. And, it, and there's just a, a lot of things out there in the artwork uh, 
that preserves something that we almost disbelieve today mm-hmm. but there's but there's evidence exactly i think a lot of the the, the things that we now consider folklore uh possibly you know were were existent. I mean, you mentioned uh, living relics of dinosaurs. Even today in the Congo Basin, along the Congo River, uh, there are reports from the, from natives and from, from people that have that have gone uh, gone on expeditions up there of a creature called the Makele Mbembe. The Makele Mbembe. The Makele Mbembe, when they describe it, sounds very much like a, a smaller version of a brachiosaur. It, it's it, it might be a living dinosaur, and it's been seen hundreds of times. Um, and of course, you've got sightings where people have described sharks in excess of fifty feet long. Um, that's some sort of megalodon. Uh, I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it exists. I'm not saying it doesn't. But as little as we know about the depth of the ocean, it's very possible it still exists. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you mentioned dogmen type creatures. There are numerous references through history of creatures creatures with a dog with the head of a dog. Uh, the first one that springs to mind is Anubis, the Egyptian god. Um, then you've got a uh, a Catholic saint, uh, I believe it's um, Saint Christopher, who was known as the dog headed saint. In a lot of the depictions, they they depict him wearing the Catholic robes uh, and with the head of a dog. Um, Marco Polo. Uh, road of dog-headed creatures. Uh, the term for dog-headed men is cynocephali. Marco Polo wrote about it. So did Christopher Columbus. Uh, Marco Polo wrote of seeing dog-headed creatures that were very aggressive on an island near China. Um, and on his deathbed, when questioned, people asked Marco Polo before he died, they said, did you embellish these tales that you told of these islands you stopped at along your way in the trade route to China? And on his dying, some, one of his dying statements was, "If anything, I left a lot out." Jeez, oh, which means he encountered a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, Christopher Columbus wrote about him. Um, there's just there's a lot of lore of it. Uh, then you've got uh, Viking lore of the Ulf Hednar, uh, wolf-headed soldiers that were impervious to blade and, and spear. Uh, that would run, charge into battle and were unstoppable. Uh, could that have been a guy wearing the head of wearing the uh, a, a wolf skin, uh, hopped up on mushrooms or something that goes running into battle? Possibly. Uh, we don't know. We don't have a time machine. We can't go back and see it for ourselves. But the lore of humanoids with the head of a dog goes back, you know, centuries, maybe even longer. There's a it, lot of it there. But it, it, it yes, statements like that, um, you know, that we're reading today, maybe uh, in, in the you know, book of Job example, mm-hmm. what uh, 3,500 years later. Yeah. But it, it it invites someone to explore that topic yes and, and well, actually, the bible the bible talks about uh, people with the head of uh, you know human people with the head of animals uh the lion men of judah uh it, it also mentioned it mentioned uh uh 
uh, you know, other type of, of animal type people. Uh, could those have been Nephilim? Possibly. I mean, we, you know, we have no frame of reference. We don't know. Uh, there's a lot of theories about that. There's a lot of creatures, a lot of theories about creatures like Bigfoot and Dogman that involve the Nephilim theory. I won't, I won't say no, that's not possible because we don't know. We haven't, we, we haven't had the opportunity to bring cryptids into the, into the scientific world. Um, and I think there's a reason for that. I think the government has known about them for a long time. They just refuse to, to share that knowledge with people because they are dangerous. I, I think it's just a, a, a really fascinating subject. And you know, there's, yeah, you know, the information's been presented right there. You, you can look it up. I, it, it, you know, Google it, or it's in the you know, the books that uh, we've been discussing. Oh, I just uh, you know, I think uh, it's like Col Colshack. You know, just mm -hmm. gr growing up watching it, and you know, just makes. Makes makes you realize, yeah, there is that possibility. Of yeah. What what and, and you know what is it? You know, it's the you know the reporter's curiosity. Well, I think the curiosity into the unknown is one of the greatest gifts we have as humans because. If we knew every mystery to the universe, it would be a pretty boring place to live. Uh, and always having something out there that's a mystery yet remains to be solved, uh, something creepy or even something fantastical, it gives us something to imagine, something to inspire to, something to try to – a mystery to try to solve. And as we're very inquisitive people, uh, it's just part of our nature – and to be exploring these legends and and searching for the answers is is one of to me it's one of the most wonderful aspects of cryptozoology is being able to to look for these mysteries to enmesh myself in the encounters and and talk to people that have had sightings and because it's it's something we don't know it's it's outside the mundane it, it 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 can be a little a little ter it can be a little terrifying and it can also be inspiring, but it's um, it's just one of those things that constantly tantalizes us and keeps us looking for the next mystery, the next creepy thing. Yeah, I I I really I, I've as you know I've done more of these um, shows I I. I, I I'm just getting more involved and intrigued by uh, cryptozoology, and mm -hmm. it's just a really captivating subject. It gets in your blood. Yeah. And and uh, when. Um, you're doing your shows, you know, you're frequently covering these kinds of uh, topics. Um, and Neoma Finn is you know, your co-host. Mm -hmm. Her and Steve Benrodis. Okay. So um, when's, when's your next show? Uh, tomorrow night. Okay, how, how do people watch 
Uh, they can find uh, all of the shows. Uh, you can find us on YouTube. Uh, just look for D.A. Roberts, author on YouTube. Uh, you can find links to the shows on my website, which is daroberts.net. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at D.A. Roberts, author. Um, but And if you uh, want to learn more about my books, they're all available on Amazon, or you can order them directly through my website, again, daroberts.net. Uh, and in any social media, you'll find me at D.A. Roberts, author. Okay. and. Yeah, you're uh, you're frequently covering cryptids. Um, got lots of fascinating subjects on there each each week. Mm-hmm. I enjoy I enjoy tuning well, in to those shows. Well, I'm glad you enjoy it. Uh, you, you can search the show on YouTube. It's called Dax Machina. Um, but you can uh, you can just find, you can find it just on the search bar by on YouTube by searching DA Roberts author. Uh just swing by the channel, give it a like and a subscribe and check it out and you'll uh, hit that little bell and it'll uh, let you know anytime we go live with a video because we have Wednesday regular Wednesday and Saturday shows but sometimes we do impromptu ones as well. Yeah, you have active chat room and some co-hosts. I do yeah, you guys have a nice, nice little thing going on there. Thank you. We have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, it it comes across on the you know, to the viewers. It, you know, and you know, you know, with the uh, you know, a few minutes we have uh, left. Um, you know, what about that Bray Road uh, case? Is, is that Something like a dogman, you know, or there are different species of like, uh, you know, like with uh, Bigfoot, you know, there's the Momo, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the skunk ape. Um, mm-hmm. is, is the Bray Road case, is that like a uh, dogman type? I, I, I think it is a type of dogman. Uh, I think there there are regional differences in the, uh, because of mm-hmm. the site, the way the sightings are conveyed. Um, like you brought up the skunk ape. Uh, like if you go up into the the Pacific Northwest, the most of the sightings of Bigfoot that they sighted there are very much like the Patterson Gimlin film. But down in Florida, it's a skunk ape. It it, it appears more chimpanzee like. Uh, so I think there there are regional differences, uh, much like uh, like the species of black bear. The black bears on the East Coast are very different from black bears on the West Coast. They just have genetic differences, uh, adaptations to their local climates. And I think it's the same thing with cryptids. I think different parts of the country breed different adaptations in the creature. Uh, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of researchers think that there's as many as 10 types of Bigfoot and seven types of dogman. Now, that's just based on on accounts that people have given and descriptions. Uh, you know, obviously they haven't brought a body in for study yet. Um, but they're in researchers. They 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 definitely have embraced the idea that there's more than one type. Okay, um, is do do you think the chupacabra is uh, something similar to dogman? Is that 
that's oh, a completely uh, different species. I think that's a different animal entirely. Okay. Uh, there, are, there are two distinctly different types of chupacabra. There was the one that was seen in, in uh, Puerto Rico, which appeared very reptilian and a lot of times walked on two legs. And then there's the kind that was spotted down in Texas, which looked like some sort of mutant dog. There would be a whole show on the, just the two types of chupacabra. Yeah, uh, yeah, that is vastly different. I wasn't uh, aware of the uh, reptilian one in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. They're very different. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll, we'll have to do another show on <laughs> on, on the chupacabra, huh? Yeah, and, and yeah, I'm, all, I'm also interested in uh, got me interested in uh, Saint Christopher the. Dog head. Yeah, the the information's out there. Uh, just go into your Google search bar and type in "dog headed saint," and it'll bring you bring you right to the websites. Uh, there, that's the beauty of the of the internet. Is now you if you know how to do to do a, a good, well thought out Google search, you can do research on almost any subject, um, and it, you can find all kinds of things if you dig deep enough. Okay. Well, it's. Yeah, we. I think we only have about two minutes left. It's. Uh, I don't. I only get started on a whole other su- subject in in just two minutes. It's not doing it justice. But uh, uh, D. Uh, I just want to th- thank you for being a fantastic guest. You're always you. welcome to come come back. Uh, yeah. It, do, do you have any anything else you want to? Uh, plug and you know we'll call it a wrap for the evening. All right, uh, yeah. Um, again, you can find all of my work at daroberts.net. I'm also all over all over Amazon. Just look da roberts author on Amazon. Uh, you can find my my uh, my podcast da dax machina on YouTube and on Facebook. We live stream to both. Um, but if you if you uh, go to the YouTube channel, you can like and subscribe and be uh, part of the giveaway because we do a lot of the giveaways in the chat. Uh, so I hope you guys will check that out, and I hope you check out my books. Uh, again, you can find them all at daroberts.net, and uh, I would love to hear from you and hear what you think of the books. Sounds good. Th- thank you very much, DA. Thanks, Barbara, for producing, and I'll be back Thursday night. And and watch DA show tomorrow night. Awesome, thank you. So, all right, have have a good uh, Wednesday and you know, the rest of the week, and ho- hopefully we'll see everyone uh, soon. Take care, everyone. Have a good night.